Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Peter Gaiman, Professor of Old Testament and Biblical Languages at Shepherd Seminary. This podcast is dedicated to discussing issues related to scripture and theology. For more information, visit petergaiman.com. Well, today we're going to talk about dispensationalism and whether or not it is heresy. And just the Cliff Notes version, it is heresy. Okay, we'll see you later. No, I'm just kidding. Even if it was heresy, we would want to talk about why it is because it definitely comes up in a lot of different conversations within churches. If you've been in a church for any amount of time, a church that's serious about studying doctrine and theology, you'll at least have come across the terminology of dispensationalism or covenant theology. Those are two big categorical distinctions of how people interpret scripture. It's kind of, it's kind of a philosophy of biblical interpretation in the strictest sense. And we'll get into that more later, but really I just want this episode to be helpful in talking about what dispensationalism really is and what it means. If somebody claims to be a dispensationalist, there's a lot of confusion on the issue and just the circles that I've run in, I know that I've identified a lot of different uh, people, brothers and sisters in Christ, who would misclassify dispensationalists and say that dispensationalism holds to certain beliefs that they actually don't hold to. And so I want to clear the water on some of those things and talk about what it is. So just by way of introductory definitions, a dispensationalist is somebody who holds to dispensationalism, which is made up of three different categories. Dispensationalism has a belief about hermeneutics. That is how one reads scripture. It also has a belief about ecclesiology, and ecclesiology has to do with the role and function of the church. And then dispensationalism also has a viewpoint on what eschatology looks like. That's the study of end times. So very simply, dispensationalism deals with those three areas. How you read scripture, how the church is to function and what its role is, and what uh, is going to happen in the end times. Those are the three categories that dispensationalism deals with, and that would set them apart from some of the other uh, historic uh, mainline denominations, um, throughout church history and things like that, whom we've come to know at least. So before we talk about those specific categories and how, uh, different dispensationalists hold to some key beliefs, I kind of want to talk a little bit about really beliefs that aren't intrinsic to dispensationalism, beliefs that are sometimes attributed to dispensationalists when in reality, these beliefs are not fundamentally a part of dispensationalism. Now, that doesn't mean, of course, that a dispensationalist could not hold to these things. There are dispensationalists who have taught heretical things in church history. That's, that is obvious. There are also, uh, people from the Reformed tradition, the covenant theologians who have also fallen into heresy in different, different ways. So it's not, it's not a matter of, of this being a part of the system. But we also want to be careful of saying that these things that I'm about to tell you are a part of dispensationalists' heritage because in in one sense, I could identify people who do hold to these things, 
but you don't have to hold to these things to be a dispensationalist. Therefore, they're not intrinsic to the system itself. So I want to give you seven of these, and I'm sure we could probably identify some more, but I think these are the biggest items that people often attribute to dispensationalism, even though it's not inherent to the system itself. So first of all, people have claimed that dispensationalism teaches multiple ways of salvation. Now, this is something that historically came about because of a misunderstanding of of some study Bible notes, uh, but the Schofield study Bible uh, originally had a note in it that it, it looked like, well, and to be fair and honest, it could actually be taken that way that, that the old Testament believers were saved by the law and new Testament believers were saved by grace. However, that's uh, in later editions that was edited to clarify the meaning. And that's not to say that that has been a main belief of dispensationalists throughout history. In fact, in my understanding, I actually am not aware of anybody in the current day who actually holds to multiple ways of salvation where Old Testament saints were um, saved by the keeping of the law and New Testament saints are saved by grace. I don't, I don't know anybody who, who believes that. In fact, John Feinberg, who's a notable dispensationalism, dispensationalist, excuse me, actually wrote a really good article on that issue. And I'll provide a link with that, uh, to that article in the description. And he, he just talks about how two or multiple views of salvation is not a scriptural con concept and that we need to understand salvation as, uh, being one way. And that's always been through faith and by God's grace. And so dispensationalism inherently doesn't hold to multiple ways of salvation. Number two, dispensationalism has been accused of teaching different view views of regeneration. Now, this is actually something I came across recently in a video by R.C. Sproul. And it was surprising to me that he would say that dispensationalism holds to a different view of regeneration when his good friend John MacArthur is a dispensationalism or is a dispensationalist, this is going to get me like all day as I'm recording this, is I'm going to keep confusing dispensationalist and dispensationalism. And so you guys can just have a great laugh on that. But anyway, so uh, it's it was uh, interesting to me because MacArthur is a good friend of Sproul, and yet he would never accuse MacArthur of having a errant view of regeneration. And that's because he doesn't. And... MacArthur, as well as many other dispensationalists, don't actually hold to a non-reformed view of regeneration. In fact, many of the dispensationalists that I know uh, are on board completely with what their covenant theologian brethren would hold to. And I think that that is because, obviously, dispensationalism is not inherently uh, holding to a different view of regeneration. Now, that's not to say that uh, there might be dispensationalists out there that would hold to different views of regeneration, but it's not inherent to the system itself. And of course, uh, I don't want to assume things when we're talking about regeneration. We're talking about the renewing, the making alive of the, of the man who's dead by the Holy Spirit to, to cause salvation to come, uh, into play there. And, and there's no no reason to suppose that that is inherent to the dispensationalist system. Now, number three, dispensationalism has often been accused of being antinomian. That's 
that means uh, without law or against the law, meaning that there's kind of like this idea of free grace going going about. And as we've talked about before, uh, we need to remember that dispensationalism is concerned with those three categories with uh, the hermeneutics, the church and the end times. That's those are the realms in which dispensationalism comes across as a hermeneutical system. And so dealing with the law isn't necessarily a part of the reform or excuse me, isn't necessarily a part of the dispensational system inherently. In fact, I have many friends who went, uh, went with me to master seminary, which is a dispensational school. And they hold to the threefold use of the law, the moral, civil, and ceremonial aspects of the law. Now I actually don't hold to the three, uh, fold tripartite view of the law and there's reason for that, but that would take a whole nother podcast to talk about, which we will, I'm sure one day talk about that. But that is a inherently reformed view of the law where the law is divided up into moral, civil, and ceremonial. And some of the reformed brethren have accused the dispensationalists of rejecting all of it, not holding to anything. Now, at the same time, there's also a lot of covenant theologian um, reformed kind of interpreters and exegetes who are also saying, hey, you know what? We can't view this threefold use of law as well. We need to come up with a better system than that. So there is discussion on that. But either way, though, the main point is just that no matter what your view of the law is, that has that really doesn't have anything to do with whether you're dispensational or not, because dispensationalism uh, is a view of how you interpret scripture, how you read it what your view on that, which could relate to the law, of course, but it's not inherently a part of that. That's a subset further down the line and uh, something worth talking about to be sure, but we'll, we'll have to talk about that some other time. So anyway, there are dispensationalists who do have antinomian tendencies to be sure, but there are also dispensationalists who are very, very much in line with the reform tradition on the law. And so I just wanted to point out that that's not inherently a part of the dispensational system. So the fourth thing that's a con, that maybe is a common misconception. I've actually, uh, I've actually struggled with this one a little bit, but, uh, it was partly because I remember watching a YouTube video, uh, of R.C. Sproul again, uh, talking about dispensationalists. And it's funny because I probably watch his videos just because I like making, or I like seeing him make fun of dispensationalists, um, which I don't know why I am a dispensationalist, which I'll talk about later, but, but it's just funny hearing people make fun of me. So I like that. But anyway, he, uh, talks about how one of the big problems with dispensationalism is that they teach trichotomy. Now, dichotomy is the belief that the body is made up of soul and spirit. Soul and spirit are the same thing and body. So you have your flesh and then you have your soul spirit, body and soul spirit. Trichotomy teaches that the soul and spirit are different and the body is there as well. So you're either made up of three parts or two parts. Now, we can't get into that whole discussion because this is beyond the purview of this episode. But I just have to summarize and say that I'm actually not aware of any dispensationalists who teach trichotomy and see our previous point, right? That's not an inherent part of dispensationalism. 
And even though I'm not able to identify any dispensationalists who hold to trichotomy, doesn't mean they exist. It doesn't mean they don't exist. I'm just willing to say it's not uh, an inherent part of dispensationalism. And so I think we can leave that at, leave that as it is. So number five, dispensationalism is inherently Arminian. So this is another uh, charge level that dispensationalists, and I would just go ahead and say that, again, dispensationalism is not a soteriological system. In other words, dispensationalism doesn't have a defined set of beliefs on soteriology. There are Arminians who are dispensationalists, but there are also Calvinists who are dispensationalists. And we'll have to have another episode defining and contrasting those uh, because, uh, our, but in basic summation, this is a way simplified version, but Arminian theology focuses on the free will of man and their pursuit of God. And Calvinism focuses on God's, uh, salvation of man. In other words, Calvin, uh, Calvinists would be defined as monergism, meaning God is the one who acts alone in salvation. Arminians are identified as synergists, meaning God acts and man acts combined together to form uh, the way in which man is saved. So anyway, all that to say is that dispensationalism isn't inherently concerned with those soteriological systems. So you could be a Calvinist and dispensationalist or Arminian and dispensationalist, and either would be uh, appropriate because dispensationalism deals with hermeneutics, deals with uh, ecclesiology with the church, and eschatology with the end times. Number six, dispensationalism teaches non-lordship salvation. That's been a uh, charge levied against dispensationalism for a while, but really it shouldn't, uh, it, it doesn't. I mean, again, with all that we've talked about with the other points, it is possible that people would not hold to lordship salvation um, and be dispensationalists, but that's not inherent to the system. Again, MacArthur, a noted dispensationalist, has written many books clarifying his views on lordship salvation. He comes down really hard on that. Uh, and it's I, I know people at seminary, people in churches who are dispensationalists who also teach the fact that Jesus has to be has to be the Lord of somebody's life for them to be saved, and that's that's what lordship salvation teaches. So again, dispensationalism isn't a sort soteriological system. Number seven, dispensationalism inherently consists of seven dispensations. Now, when I was growing up, this is actually what I was taught. I was we would have Sunday school classes that went through the seven dispensations and what those what those looked like and how they how they happened and so forth. But uh interestingly enough, as I grew up, met other dispensationalist uh people, I found out that the seven dispensations weren't actually dogma or concrete things that are a part of dispensationalism. There are people who hold to four dispensations. There are people who hold to two. There are people who hold to uh, seven, 10, 32 million, you know, all these different things. Now, the idea of dispensations is just the fact that God works differently at different times with his people. And I think everybody agrees with that. Even covenant theologians agree that God works in different ways at different times. It's just when we start to try to classify those things that we get into trouble. So dispensationalism inherently uh, 
you can't put a number on how many different periods of God's working there are. I mean, you could, but really it doesn't really matter uh, scripturally speaking, and so it's not an inherent part of the system. So these seven issues, uh, they should not be used in critiques of dispensationalism. I mean, by all means, dispensationalists really want to be critiqued, or at least the good ones do, because they want to keep double-checking and keep trying to return to God's Word and see what that has to say. But uh, don't use these seven as critiques of dispensationalism because you'll just frustrate people in the conversation and it just won't go well. So after looking through these seven uh, improper characterizations of dispensationalism, what is it that really defines a dispensationalist? And I know many people have some different... Uh, different views on what defines dispensationalism and what are the non-negotiables. In fact, I've collected a list of different authors who have listed uh, these essentials of dispensationalism, and I will include a link in the description of the episode for those different lists. But I want to give you four that I feel are really the essentials of dispensationalism. Four characteristics, four uh, beliefs which have to be held by every dispensationalist in order to be a dispensationalist. Now, obviously, as we're talking about this, I hope I'm not coming across in the way that I'm saying you are using your system and then you're interpreting scripture. Uh, basically, how covenant theologians would describe their system and dispensationalists would describe their system is that we are interpreting scripture. And as we're looking at scripture, we have to go back to kind of categorize things a little bit and see where we're winding up. And that's, that's where we get these systems is that you're retroactively, hopefully at least that's the right way to do it is you're, you're retroactively after examining passages saying this is how it has to be. So I don't want to give the uh, indication that there's like a dispensational Bible manual out there that you have to interpret scripture this way or something um, and that you are working from that manual to scripture. No, really, this comes about by observations of scripture and we're saying, hey, this is because of what we see in scripture. This is what we need to understand. There are some philosophical issues involved in both systems, but we don't need to get into those to appreciate them. So the first uh, of the essentials for dispensationalism would be that dispensationalism holds to the fact that the Old Testament must be interpreted within its own context. The Old Testament must be interpreted within its own context. That is so important. In fact, I think this is the most important uh, part of dispensationalism because it really defines and leads to the rest and it's also one of the biggest dividing points between a covenant theological system versus dispensationalism because dispensationalists believe that the old testament has to be has to be given its own voice it has to be interpreted within its own context in other words a dispensationalist would say you don't need the new testament in order to know what the old testament meant that's that's a huge dividing line. Now, don't get me wrong, uh dispensationalists would be would be very appreciative of the New Testament and say it's crucial to our understanding of the unfolding of God's plan. That's without a doubt absolutely true. But at the same time, uh dispensationalists would say you don't use the New Testament to reinterpret 
or um, give a new meaning to the Old Testament text. Now, that's where the covenant theologians would say, no, the New Testament is the divine commentary on the Old Testament. And if it reinterprets a passage, we need to, or I should say allegedly reinterprets a passage because a dispensationalist would say New Testament does not reinterpret passages. It just applies them or gives gives us insight into how to apply it to a certain situation and it never adds meaning. So that's that's the hard part of being a dispensationalist is can we actually prove that there are cer- that certain Bible passages don't reinterpret or give new meanings to Old Testament passages. And there are some difficult passages, but I do think there are explanations for those. So that's one of the big issues defining uh, a dispensationalist is that he says, hey, you know what? The Old Testament must be given its own voice, must be allowed to to talk to talk to the reader in its context. Uh, The the way I kind of like to think about it is are we discounting the meaning that the that the ancient Near Eastern Jew would have acknowledged? Do we understand the text in that way? That that becomes the one of the major issues for me because if our meaning has nothing to do with what the Old Testament Jew would have understood, I think we've really gone a far way away from where we ought to be hermeneutically. So that's number one. Number two, dispensationalism teaches that there is a distinction between Israel and the church. This is, again, something that every dispensationalist holds to. Uh, One of the things that marks covenant theologians is the belief in the continuous people of God, meaning that the church has always existed in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. They existed in Israel in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, the new Israel, the church, has come on the scene. And dispensationalists reject that model, saying that there are two uh, places in God's plan, distinct places. Israel is not the church. The church has a special part in God's plan, a special role. And Israel has a distinct special part, special role. So dispensationalists hold to the fact that there is this distinction. Now, that doesn't mean, of course, that dispensationalism does not see similarity between the two. In fact, uh, many dispensationalists that I'm aware of understand the fact that there is overlap, spiritually speaking, between uh, the church and Israel. So much so, in fact, that both are called the seed of Abraham. One physically, of course, related to Abraham and one spiritually related to Abraham by faith. And there's a lot of discussions on that and a lot to be said. So not saying that there aren't acknowledges, uh, acknowledgments of similarity, but there are definite acknowledgments of distinction between Israel and the church. So the third main issue essential that defines dispensationalism is that dispensationalism teaches that there is a future for ethnic Israel. Now this goes with the previous point in that there's a distinction between the future between between the people, the geopolitical people of Israel and the church. And there are specific promises made in scripture that are linked with the geopolitical people, the ethnic people of Israel. I mean, if you read Leviticus 26, especially verses 40 to 45, Deuteronomy 4 verses 25 to 31, Hosea 3, Zechariah 12 through 14, etc., there are mentions all over of the fact that there is a future kingdom that awaits the people of Israel. 
Uh, and of course, dispensationalists would read the New Testament and see places like Matthew 19, 28, Acts 1, 6, 3, 19 through 21, Romans 11, uh, as indications of the continuation and the expectation of those promises of restoration. So this is probably a overused saying, but I think it really gets the point across. Uh, at, when we interpret scripture, this is the one of the dispensational mottos, if you will. We can't assume that the curses for disobedience applied to the national people of Israel, but the promised blessings for the repentance and obedience don't apply to Israel. And that's... uh that would be a grave error on our part if we assumed that, hey, they're going to be cursed. Like, for example, Leviticus 26 is a great example because it talks about the punishments of disobedience. Deuteronomy 29.30 talk about the punishments for disobedience. And then it says, but you know what? When you repent from the land, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bring you back into the land, do all these things for you. And so a dispensationalist says, hey, you know what? The Old Testament already says there's going to be a future for Israel because when they repent, which God promises they will, then God's going to bring them back in the land and do these things for his people as he promised. So that's an important thing that we need to understand is that uh, an essential of dispensationalism is that we believe in a future for ethnic Israel. Now, as uh, a continuation of that point, but a separate point, number four Dispensationalism teaches that the promises made to ethnic Israel will have a literal future fulfillment in the millennial kingdom. In other words, what that means is that those passages that I talked about where God promises uh, that Israel will be returned to the land, they will have a promised ruler. For example, Ezekiel 34, 23 through 24, Isaiah 2 says they'll have prominence among the nations. These promises will all be literally fulfilled. Or they won't be. And dispensationalists say, yes, we believe they will be literally fulfilled and Israel will have a place of prominence in the land. They will be the kingdom among kingdoms and they will have this preeminence among the nations where Jesus, the Messiah, will reign among them as their leader and they will serve him gladly. Now, that is a whole theology that happens even before you get to the New Testament. And then when dispensationalists read Revelation 20, they say, oh, well, here's where this time period is going to happen in the thousand year reign of Christ in Revelation 20. So I like to say, and I don't think I'm alone when I say this, that I'm a premillennialist, a dispensational premillennialist before I even get out of the Old Testament. It's just the New Testament, which gives me a framework in which to put all the things I already have from the Old Testament into place. And so I think it's fair to say that all dispensationalists have to hold to a millennial kingdom of some kind. Now, that doesn't mean that a premillennialist would have to hold to a thousand-year reign, although that's the number that's given in Revelation 20. Hypothetically, he could say, you know what, I take that number symbolically, but I'm going to take it as like 500 years or something. I don't know. Hypothetically, you could do that, but you have to have some time period where these promises made to Israel will have a literal future fulfillment. That's just a part of dispensationalism. So when we think about these things, uh, I'm going to give you these four once again here. Dispensationalism teaches that the Old Testament must be interpreted within its context. 
Number two, dispensationalism teaches that there's a distinction between Israel and the church. Number three, dispensationalism teaches there is a future for ethnic Israel. And number four, dispensationalism teaches that the promises made to ethnic Israel will have a literal future fulfillment in the millennial kingdom. Now, those four points that I bring across uh, may be minimalistic. People will be saying, wait a second, there's so much more that defines a dispensationalist. And that may be true. But in my eyes, those are the four essentials that have to be in in every dispensationalist's arsenal that when you read scripture, those are the things that you have to come across. Those are the people who fit in as dispensationalists. Um, there are other crazy people who believe all sorts of things, of course, and crazy people who believe these things <clears throat> like me. But anyway, uh, these are the things that have to be, uh, believed in order to be classified quote unquote as a dispensationalist. Now, whenever I talk to people, I don't trumpet my horn and say, I'm a dispensationalist, therefore you must bow down and worship me or anything like that. I actually don't like to trumpet labels or anything like that. I like to work through text by text. In fact, this is honestly not the ideal uh, way of doing a podcast episode. I'd much rather march through a bunch of different passages. And I think we will in time when we go through that. But just as far as when I'm thinking what could be helpful to people, I think just this concise uh, definition of what dispensationalism is could be helpful for people. I know even talking to various people, they have questions about what is a dispensationalist. Uh, even people I've met in doctoral studies, they don't actually really even know what a dispensationalist is. So hopefully this will be helpful to different people. And uh, I hope that it's spurred your thinking and has helped you learn just a little bit more about what people might mean when they say, hey, you know what, dispensationalists are crazy because dot, dot, dot. Well, you might be able to say, well, actually, dispensationalism doesn't, uh, that's not inherent to disp- dispensationalism. And you might get thrown out a window or something like that. So anyway, uh, thanks for listening to the Bible Sojourner podcast. For those of you who are interested, I'll put a link in the podcast description where I have listed Charles Ryrie, John Feinberg, and Michael Vlock's lists of dispensational essentials. Don't forget to email me your comments or questions at peter at petergaiman.com. For more information on the podcast or about me, Go ahead and visit petergaiman.com for more information on Shepherd's Seminary. Visit shepherds.edu. Until next time, ciao.